Hey there, this is Amanda from She Owns, and you're listening to the She Owns Podcast, the show that helps you own your past, your present, and your future for people who want to live their lives in a more intentional way. Today, we're chatting with my good friend, Matthew Stillman, the creator of Primal Derma, the best skincare product I've ever used. Seriously, I have multiple jars all over my house. He's a brilliant, compassionate, clever guy, and he's one of my favorite people to have crazy deep conversations with. Let's see where this goes. All right. Thank you so much, Matthew, for being here with me. You are amazing. You're one of my favorite humans in the entire world. And I know every single person that I know that also knows you feels the same way. So thank you for taking the time to be here with me today. Pleasure. You, you matter. And the things you've been on for as long as I've known you have mattered too. Thank you. So self-worth. I'm sure that you have a lot to say about self-worth and how people are viewing themselves and how I think that one, as long as I've known you, you are the person who is the most sure of themselves and unapologetic, like genuinely, I know you're making a face right now, like you don't believe that, but that's how you have always come across to me. You're very sure of what you know and don't know. You're all, you're always open to other people's opinions and thoughts. Um, and it, to me, it comes across as because you value yourself and you value everyone around you. So anyway, let's just chat and talk about whatever. I'm not persuaded by the value of self-worth. Okay. Not that it's not valuable, but I think that it is, it's like people who are saying like buy NFTs, like slow your roll. Yeah. Like, yeah. Not to say like that they couldn't be valuable, but like, like, what are you actually trying to pitch with this? Not to make me think that it's a scam either, but you know, in a time where you, if you came from a culture that was worth the name culture, the idea of self worth would have been a very distant one because your sense of self worth would be generated and sustained and maintained not by you and you believing in yourself but by the fact that it was maintained and sustained by the people in the place around you. You'd be like, well, I come from this place, which has been here for 10,000 years or however long. Uh, I'm sustained by this elder who believes, like if this elder believes in me, like how could I not be of value? If, you know, if this water is willing to, if this river is willing to give its water to me after I lay down all these prayers and it's willing to feed me. Like, how could I not be worthy? And so, you know, this networked sense of identity and value, I think is more in the, in the order of things. And that you can see why when people struggle so hard to do the hard work of self value of work, of self-worth understanding and the work that goes into it because you're doing the work of like 50 people right i agree um, wholeheartedly so, which is like not it's not a, a bad idea to for worthiness to exist but all the humility that comes with being on the receiving end of that mm -hmm. you have to basically get rid of the humility and basically take on the pride without any of the oh my god this person thought this of me and this thing person and so there's is a different sort of deeply knit nest that comes when you're on the receiving end of people believing in you, yeah. which allows you to proceed differently in the world, which doesn't mean that you don't have self-worth. It just means that the direction that it comes is different and you're not doing 
the Herculean work of all that stuff and the exhaustion that comes along with it, which is why people find again and again, like, man, believing in yourself and pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps is bonkers. And so that's my, that's my warm take on self-worth. And, you know, honestly, I think that's one of the main reasons why I created this program that I did so that we can do it as a community, believing in each other and believing in ourselves, because specifically my experience is that, you know, my dad believed in me from the moment I was born that I would be able to do whatever I wanted to, no questions asked. Like he just absolutely believed I could do whatever I wanted. And it made me believe in myself, like completely believe in myself. Um, He's gone now. So I'm struggling with that a little bit. Like there's nobody left that actually just believes in me regardless of anything. But um, so- Let's just talk about that for a second though. And I'm glad that you received that. And it what and of course, and also you didn't just believe because he said it, you believed it because he showed up in other ways. Because if it was just as simple as just saying it, then people would be saying, like, oh, you're held in the light and you're the best person to be like, great, no problem. But yeah. it actually was evidenced by labor. But more than that, there probably were and he may have been like the tip of the proverbial spear, but there may have been more. But of course, there's this notion, which is more mysterious, you can shrug your shoulders at it, and not say this is the way that it is. But there are some understandings of the world that say, of course, we weep properly when the people who have made us so are gone from this mortal plane and coil, but that it's possible to call on their help from other places. And so there is a cascade of again people from real cultures around the world that have what we would call self-worth because they call on the dead they call on the ancestors they know that the grass is where their ancestors are buried and that the deer that eat that grass feed on their ancestors and so all that together they're like oh man i'm being believed in now and the fact that when i Uh, can see that where I make a fire is greener next year. And that's where my grandfather or grandmother was buried. That's them speaking to me. I mean, of course, I weep for you the fact that your father isn't here long. I wish he was there for as long as you could have had him. But being open to those other ways of being informed and being in a relationship are worth having too. I'm very glad that you're creating a a temporary little community toss, probably even more than a community, because which is in no way an insult to what you've built. Uh, I know you have deep integrity and tremendous capacities. And these will be friends of the road. We'll be like the, the people who you drove cross country with, you know, when you were in high school, like who you were like good to and good with to with each other. But at the end of the trip, you'll be like, we probably aren't going to see each other again. We'll always have good feelings for each other. That's not a community, which is not an insult to it. It just there's a limitness to it. And so I, I would call that a community toss rather than a community because it's online, which is not a problem, but just that it I'm just aware about some of the limitations and the desire to be like, oh, it's forever and we're doing it and you know, we're in the same tribe and like chill, slow your roll. Like let's actually like we recognize the poverty by going at the appropriate speed of what's actually happening, as far as I'm concerned. 
on the, the thing I love about the group that I have right now is that most of these women I've known for almost as long as I've known you. And it's like, we just keep coming back to each other. So it's been very wonderful. And speaking of the ancestor bit, I just visited Kentucky this weekend because I'm, you know, trying to figure out what comes next after Carter graduates. And, um, I don't want to stay in Ohio. I want to go somewhere else. And so I'm trying to figure out where, and my mom's entire family is from Kentucky, West Virginia. So I was visiting there just kind of, you know, seeing if I like it there, et cetera. And, trekked out to the middle of nowhere to a cemetery to find where my second great-grandparents were buried and yeah just looking for her support more than anything of you know like this is where you know like I know that you um, are part of the reason I'm here and thank you for my life and I would love your support (laughs) in the future so there's no no doubt that that woman whose name you never knew, whose face you never saw, prayed for you. She didn't pray for Amanda Krill. She didn't know your name, but she said, you know, may it be that I have a great, great granddaughter, that they come into a world that is, looks in such a way, and long may they live. I, I can guarantee she shed tears more than once praying, praying for you to be so in the world. And to actually be on the receiving end of that is amazing. And I'm so glad to hear about people who are in the construct uh, that you've built, whether it's called community or communitas, you know, is neither here nor there. But so many people who are listening, it's very easy to be like, well, I've joined a group. I'm doing it. Like, chill. Yeah. (laughs) Which is not to say that it suddenly needs to be fixed, but just to be a a little bit present to the poverty and that the hunger to feed it, to fix it, is its own thing to contend with. Yeah, I find that one of the things that I'm struggling with the most is that I want to fix things for everybody. And yeah. I have I have had to come to the realization that it's not my business to fix anybody. If, it, yeah. if they're happy where they are, and even if I think it's crazy what they're doing or living through, I'm sure people felt that way about the way that I was for a long time. So sure. you can't fix things for people. You can only offer them an olive branch, I guess, and you know, be there when and if they decide to do it for themselves. But yeah, the one thing that I was going to say about the self-worth thing that I think women specifically in the Midwest, not just the Midwest, but very much so in the Midwest are struggling with their self-worth because they haven't had a proper community around them as they're growing up. Like they, they have a community, but it's not one that values them any more than being a help meet to some, you know, leader in the church or whatever. Um, I've been reading a book called Disobedient Women and it's magnificent. It's so good, but it also makes me very angry for all of the women who were basically told, you know, like all your only value is to have kids and raise them. And I, you know, you know, I grew up in a Christian home and whatever, but my, I didn't really have that. I was raised more to be a strong, independent woman. But then when I come out into the time to get married or whatever, the people that are available to me or are part of the community that I'm in all were raised to think that all I'm good for is to be a wife and a mother and that's it. And luckily, you know, your, I'm not in that. Help, help meet is such a great word. It's like, it's so evocative of a particular flavor. So yeah, I love just. Yeah. And that's what the root, the word that she uses in the book a lot. Um, oh, yeah. 
And because, you know, that's exactly what we're told. Like, that's all you're good for is this. You are under your husband who is underneath Christ, who is underneath God. And this is all you are yeah, here for. Genesis stuff, you know. Yeah. And it's. It to Adam. But it's left a whole bunch of women with the the lack of I'm not good for anything except these things. So that's one of the reasons why I picked out self-worth was that because I don't think that we have we have not been taught that we are worthy simply because the river gives us water and all of those things. I read Braiding Sweetgrass, which is part of where all of this came from. So, yeah. Yeah. Braiding Sweetgrass, which I love. I, uh, no one, not no one, that's not true, but less people are excited about Gathering Moss, which I think is a superior book by Robin Wall Kimmerer. It's, I just got that one. I haven't started it yet, but they, like it's coming very soon. I ban myself. It's so <laughs> good. It like, makes me swoon. It's so good. I mean, like, I know why people like reading Sweetgrass, but for me, pretty, uh, Gathering Moss, that's the jam. It's night then. So another thing that I have, what we're going to be focusing on this next month is owning your failures. And I know that you have lived a whole life and you have done lots of things, some of which have been failures, but why, how do you view those failures? I, I, I'm assuming that like they were just things that you learned from and moved on, but I want to hear you say how you handle those things and whatnot. Well, uh, I mean, was it a failure that I got fired from Food Network, which was an amazing job. I mean, yeah, in some ways, then I got fired for, for my own selfishness and foolishness, but not only that, but I mean, also that. Was it a failure that my marriage of 13 years, which meant everything to me, ended? Um, in one way, not in others. Was it a failure that, you know, ideas for um, partnerships, sort of, that I put a tremendous amount of work into um, got a little bit down the way after spending time and energy and went nowhere. Are those failures? I mean, yes and no. Um, so, of course, there's plenty of, you know, you can sort of be um, preternaturally wise, like, oh, yes, well, I've learned over time that these things were never failures and, you know, everything in, you know, in scale and, you know, have a distant view and a long view and whatever. But I think. I mean, I have grieved over some of those things and wept tears, bitter tears over some of those things and properly. I guess I would also say that like my willingness to not let things that have transpired in, in the past be the final version of what it meant. Not to say that I've done this universally or do this well or all the time that this is, you know, like, I've got the code cracked on this, guys. Listen to me and my amazing counsel on the matter. But, you know, it's very easy, just as an example, to say that like, there's a particular core story from your youth that means something to you, that says this is part of the way that I am and the way that I see things, which is not wrong. But do you have the capacity to have, not to force a new understanding, but allow for new possibilities to emerge. Like, oh, wow, I never realized that this story also meant this. And to have that soft enough boundary to be delighted by, oh, wow, that's possible too. Um, because when you make it so that it, it always means this, then there's no possibility for new horizons. You can never actually meet the horizon. You can only go and 
the horizon is just the limit of your view. And that goes forward as well as backwards. And so can you meet these things and be willing to circle around it differently so that you can think, oh, wow, it doesn't always mean just this. So like what you just said about you know being raised to be a help me, I mean, 100%. And, and the way that that's impacted you, 100%. And may it be that there comes a time where you can come to look at that from four o'clock as opposed to 12 o'clock and be like, I never even thought to look at it from this perspective. And now I see it differently. And I'm still including the way that my original understanding, but that capacity for things to be of more, more than what you originally thought allows them to be recontextualized. Um, and it allows things that became ossified and hard and not food to be turned into something that actually might be digestible. And that's what the work of culture is. It takes, you know, the things that are the most impossible and undigestible and finds a way of making them something that is nourishing. This is why I love talking to you. Everything, you just always take everything and turn it into the most beautiful thing. Um, yeah, I I think that I love the the shift and I definitely am not there yet with the whole um, help me conversation with being able to look at it from a different perspective, but I'm sure at some point I will be at some well, point I will be. You, you may be, but you can't go looking for it. You have to be surprised. Right. You have to be open to being surprised as opposed to, you know, to prepare yourself against surprise to be like, you know, I need to be in control of all this means that you actually never have a chance to learn something except for what you've determined you're going to learn. So again, that's not a problem. That might be a point of safety for a long time in a completely reasonable place. But ultimately, to be pre prepared for surprise is to be educated um, and to be prepared against a surprise is to just to be like schooled. So, which again, is not a problem, but just to see that there's a relationship between them. I mean, I would I'd make a, this is a, an example of, I'll just use, not because it's like the best example, just because it's an example, but let's say that you are, uh, lots of people are lactose intolerant, right? Uh, and you're like, what the hell is he talking about? Wait. I'm waiting. I know. I've, <laughs> I've known you long enough to know, know this is going just, somewhere. Just to say. <laughs> But lots of people who are lactose intolerant can eat particular types of cheese. Why? Well, because the food has been cultured. They've taken this population of bacteria that can do what humans cannot. There's bajillions of little things that are loaded into it. And the origin of that is its own interesting thing, but um, which eat the undigestible part that humans often struggle with and turn it into something that is a new thing that doesn't have this other stuff in it. You could never you know, sift out you know, uh, the problematic part, quote unquote, in milk, the lactose. You can only digest it out. Well, how do you do that? By doing this thing. And then there's one of my three favorite food quotes, and I have three favorite food quotes, is that amazing. Uh, <laughs> is cheese is milk's leap towards immortality it's not actually immortality but it's towards immortality and so the culturing work of 
putting this bacteria in, takes that which is undigestible, turns it into food, and turns it into a new substance that has a chance of lasting longer. And that itself is a tradition. So culture is not you know, a way of being, it's a way of practicing. And there's, of course, great traditions all over the world of cheesemaking, which are the embodiment of a culture's understanding of their relationship to the herd, to the land, to the seasons, to who they are. I mean, like, I am so down with that. Uh, so that's an example. Like, so what cultural skills do you have that do the work of taking that which is undigestible and making something that shows up for who you are and making that thing digestible? And that shows up in grief practices. That shows up in initiatory practices, all sorts of things. But it, it brings you more into that sense of self-worth because the self-worth is not established by you, but it's by the network. You know, it's not one person who could culture milk. It takes billions of the little bacteria to do the work. Writing this down because I'm going to forget it later, even though I have the audio, but I just want to write it down right now. I know, but I just want to write it down right now. Okay. okay. Um, so yeah, you're just, every time I talk to you, it's like the conversation goes places I never would have expected you to go, but it's so great. So Thanks again for being here. <laughs> My other two favorite food quotes are this. Just for the, while we're No, there. I have to know what they are. Yes. Okay. So that's the first one. Cheese is milk's leap towards immortality. Second one is from a French gastronome slash philosopher named Briat Savaron, who says, tell me what and how you eat, and I'll tell you who you are. Come on. <laughs> and then the last one is from this British preacher, who I forget his name, but it's from the 1700s. And he says, no doubt God could have made a finer and more delicious berry than a strawberry, but there is no doubt that he didn't. <laughs> it does, Nick. I think you're the only person alive that I know that has three favorite food quotes, That's, but they're all good. So if pushed, I could probably think of other ones, but those are my three favorites. So, well, actually, I have a fourth one just to throw it in there. The way that you make a... Uh, a small fortune in the food and wine industry is to start with a large fortune. Yeah, actually, that, that, that would be accurate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My friend Kevin Israeli told me that one. So that's funny. So, what else are we going to talk about? So, the other topic so we talk about failures and self worth a little bit um, values. Something that I did not think of until a few years ago, when I was on a call with my friend Jacqueline, she invited me to be on this call that her friend was doing, and she was like helping people identify their values. And it was not something that I had ever consciously thought of before, like what what are my values and where am I living outside of my values? And she had us do a little exercise, and it turned out that my number one value is freedom, which when I think about it makes complete sense but not it is sure. not <laughs> it's not <laughs> something that I had ever like processed before and then when I think of when every decision that I make if I run it through you know that litmus test of is it going to impede my freedom and if it is then I am it's a hard no for me like that's why I don't get a real job because I would have to wear dress clothes and like get up at the same time every day and like how could I ever do that yeah. so um where do you, what do you think happens when people aren't living within their values? Like what are the consequences of that? That's what I want to ask you. Um, 
I talk about this um, first through the, the lens of health as opposed to values. Okay. That the measure of your own health is not just your own, but by the health of that which gives you health in life. So how healthy could you be if the place that you live is sick and fetid? If the people who support you are you know, falling apart at the seams and don't have access to X, Y, and Z. So this, I mean, this is a bit of a theme that you'll see, but like your values are not your own. Your values, I mean, of course, are important to know and know something about, but they also are life-giving to the people and the non-people around you, to the people in the place around you. Do they feed that? Can you call out to the whole divine night for what you love and what you stand for and then earn your name? You know, be, be kind and wild and disciplined, but also absolutely generous. And this is the astonishing business of deity making, as well as maybe the only possibility for something that looks like a victory. Between that, you know, we've glimpsed hell's chambers. And the fact is, is that most real, honest, initiatory work is simply just to bear it, take it, walk through hell. I mean, really, that's what most of it's about. That's where these taxing elaborate rituals and three-day stories come from. So we're in it right now. So when horror sweeps our world with sweeping, we sometimes risk it by cutting the cords to our deeper, more soulful values and the restorative goddess and the, and the restorative ones who live there. And I can say more about that, but it is the practice of our values as opposed to just having them, but as the life affirmingness of them and that it can't only be for you. You are absolutely included, you matter. Of course, of course, of course. But also, how do your values impact that which is you know, life-giving around you? You know, not that we need to in any way talk about primal drama and my skincare company, but it- We do, but go on. But I would just say like, you know, animals need to die for me to make this skincare. I'm not, you know, unaware of that. I'm not, I don't want to gloss over that. I don't want to center or, or decenter that. But there was a time where there was an understanding in the culture that the health of the herd, the health of the land, and the health of the people was bound up together. And part of what maintains the health of the herd is the wolf. And if we take away the wolf by penning up cows or shooting wolves, someone has, has to take the place of being the wolf. Now that's not a invitation to willingly kill, kill stuff, but is it possible that part of your values could be, I need to eat, the herd needs to go on, the land needs to be fed. How does freedom line up with that? It can absolutely line up with that. And there's nothing wrong with freedom as a value. 
but how do you find the, the mycelial ways that that needs to be practiced so it doesn't feed only you, but also you? And that's culture work. It's a thing to wonder about. And you also can't get so lost in trying to like pre-figure out every single way of this is going to, to try to get it right ahead of time. This is goes to the failure of being willing to fail interestingly is part of the work. Totally normal conversation. No, yeah. I mean, with you, <laughs> this is a totally normal conversation, a hundred percent. So okay, back to what you said about, you know, like the health of the herd and the health of the land and all of those things. When did we stop valuing that as a as a society? Like, and how do we get back to that? There's no back to get to. Okay. And the idea that we need to find out the particular moment is a very Western literate, um, Protestant in particular, but Christian in general, way of like, what was the origins of thing? When did sin begin? Right? I mean, that's what you're asking. And how do we redeem ourselves? What's the natural version of Jesus Christ that can fix this for us? Like when you say it that way, you're like, I I just see what I did there. But like, you know, like that's there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, no crime, but just to see like there are stowaways that even if you like reject the thing, like new boss is sometimes the same as the old boss. So I'm, I'm very actively trying to deconstruct a whole lot of things. So I will always resort back to that way of thinking, but I'm also actively trying to not to. So thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. yeah. And again, like no, no crime, like this is, it's in there and it's just worth lifting up. You know, it had lots of beginnings. Does and it's very easy to say agriculture. It's very easy to say the industrial revolution. It's very easy to say the establishment of the city state. You could also say the domestication of fire. You could say alphabetic literacy. Like there's all those things are important in understanding. You know, and there isn't one beginning. You know, again, to sort of reference the Bible, and it says, you know, in the beginning. But that's actually not accurate because it's more in the beginnings. There are so many beginnings. Yeah. So how do we get back to? Again, it's sort of having this linear theory of time that says, well, if we get back to that, you know, if we just eat paleo, then we just uh, live in with 150 people with a Dunbar number and all live in a yurt and I'm, you know, knitting socks and you're killing moose, then, you know, everything's perfect, right? There's nothing else to know except to be skillful that way. Like my son's really good at working with wood and he knows how to like sharpen a, an ax. So that's going to work. Absolutely. I, <laughs> <chill. laughs> so, Culture making is work. And it is practice and it is learning and it is having the willingness to fail interestingly, the willingness to change the rules when you see that compromise is seriously happening when one person's gonna win at the expense of others. Not to say that I'm some sort of communist ideal like, hey man, there's no such thing as winning. Like it's holding all that stuff lightly. So I get the intention behind what you're asking, but it really, it's more a grief. What you're saying is, let's bypass the, the heartbreak and the grief of actually where we are. And part of, which is a completely understandable response. But I think part of contending with that very question, which is an honorable one at its heart, is how do I skillfully contend with grief? 
in the poverty of my times and not knowing how I got here. And I don't, I don't even know that there's an us that I can even talk about who I'm associated with. I found, well, and somebody just said this to me today that my MO is that I start making new things or get real busy so I don't have to handle the emotions and the grief and the other things of whatever it is I'm going through. And it is extremely accurate. I do do exactly <laughs> that. <laughs> I think you probably are aware. Um, but yeah, so I, I struggle with that, just being present and just feeling it. So I, obviously you're going through a big thing right now. So how do you do that? How do you just not get busy to distract yourself? Cause that's, I don't know how to do that. You have to have started this years ago I and mean, the best time to have planted a tree is a uh, hundred years ago. Right. The, the but I time. didn't. <laughs> so I have to figure the, it out now. The next, the next best time is 20 years ago. The next best time is yesterday. And the next best time is today. So, and in the meanwhile, how, start to cultivate enough of an ear and an eye to find the trees that do exist, that people were lucky enough to plant and see if you can approach it with any sort of skill or any sort of grace and say, would you mind if I stood here for a while? So practicing the things that start to cultivate slowness or start to cultivate an ear, uh, start to cultivate an eye. I mean, just here's another boring example. I mean, maybe this was seven or eight years ago. I um, it was more, but about that, doesn't matter. I visited dear friends in Maine and we were going um, in the fall and we were gonna go uh, black trumpet mushroom hunting. And which I'd never done, but you know, I'm a weirdo who's sort of into that sort of thing. And that's why they brought me. And I was like, this sounds great. I, you know, we were still like, here's what a black trumpet mushroom looks like, you know, and here's where they broadly are, you know, here's the basket, go crazy. I could not find a fucking black trumpet mushroom for the life of me. Like, I could be this close and be like, I don't see it. I don't see it at all. Now, of course, I had moments of like, how is everyone finding black trumpet mushrooms? And I had to learn to sort of soften my gaze. Yeah. And sort of see something that was not a black trumpet mushroom, but sort of like a disturbance in the field or something that was vaguely the shape of, and I started finding them. And then I wouldn't say that I, I got good at it, but I got so much better at it that I started taking too much. And the person who was leading us is like, hey, you don't have to take every mushroom. And like, I didn't personally like damage that field, but just to say like, you have to leave some for there too, which he didn't say ahead of time. This was all part of the learning. I didn't yeah. feel castigated. And again, I didn't leave some you know, gaping psychic or physical wound in, you know, the hills of mid-coast Maine, but I learned something. So there's a strong sense of like, how do we do it? How do we fix it? Let's get off the list so we can be maximally efficient and like get on to not feeling all the heartbreak of this, as opposed to how do we proceed slowly, take a little bit less, offer things along the way, and have beauty making as one of our responses to the time that we're in. And beauty making won't save us, but man, if you don't have access to beauty making eloquence in the time you know, it's hardest, when the fuck else is it for? Yeah. 
and so you know the articulateness of the thumb and the and the and the forefinger is one way people have responded to slow and to make beauty but also articulateness of the tongue is another and i would make a, a case that there's a strong relationship between the thumb the tongue and beauty making but those that's not the only way and so there's some learning to do and so it's not like an automatic fix to to say like but i understand the response and you certainly saw this you know 10 years ago like eat what your great-grandparents ate you know that's what's healthy for you or you know do the grief practice or the cultural practice of your you know wherever you're from and if you're from lithuania then it's lithuanian and it's that simple like it could be that as opposed to being willing to know something about damn what's the shape of the of the beginnings of the poverty of the time that I'm in and to do some of the learning and to approach slowly. You know, there's a reason why so many people who live by rivers loathe um, people who ride jet skis up and down them or on lakes, not because they're loud and annoying and the people who ride them are often douches, which is all true, but- It's true. <laughs> but, <laughs> totally true. But, but because even though the, they never, um, the jet ski never actually touches the banks at all. It's the wake that they make that touch the, the banks that that degrade the sides of the, of the riverbanks. Yeah, actively, yeah. Actively. And it's the manner of approach because if you're in the water and you're going, you know, 45 miles an hour, those sloshes are the things that to undo it even though they never actually touch it and so when you're in the water the wake gets there long before you ever do if you ever do so that your manner of approach matters it doesn't mean there's no such thing as speed or there shouldn't be but just to like be aware of like oh this is part of the consequence and so part of going of going fast is how do i feed the place more if speed needs to be a part of the consequence of the way that i go which is okay being aware of those things and doesn't, and that's just an example with rivers, but you know, um, you can imagine there's other ways to imagine that. And it doesn't yeah, mean no, that automatically just going slow means that it's better, um, but that's something just to be aware of. Yeah, no, that's really important for me to remember because getting there fast is always better in my opinion, but I don't think about the wake that I'm leaving behind in any, damage that i'm doing forget about the hind in front yeah get there before you do and just as as an example of of that another one which is a heartbreaking one but just it's it's a very clear one i think how many people do you know who jet off to costa rica or peru to go gobble ayahuasca to get personal redemption and spiritual freedom and healing and which without recognizing anything about their poverty beyond the fact like it sucks for me which i get and why you'd want to be free but to use some sort of indigenous people's cultural understanding of their being in the world that you going there is the wake that gets there long before you do the hotels the roads the people who are over there who are poor who are like man this is just sort of i'll suddenly have a chance now i get to sort of uh, prey on hungry white people and they're sort of forced into it like all that's the wake 
and look, there's yeah. lots to say about that particular thing. It's not to pick on ayahuasca or white people going down there or all the reasons you might go. Like that's not the thing. It's to think, consider the consequence of speed and the and how much harder it is to maintain culture and do culture work when you're going fast only and not doing the rep the reparative restorative work of feeding a place to. Which again, I want to be very clear. I'm not saying that these things should never be done, but that part is often not considered. Right. Just like digesting everything you just said. Uh, yeah, gosh, you're so insightful in every way. Um, so I do want to talk about primal derma because I think it's important. So tell me, how did you even start the company? Like, I kind of know the answer, but Tell me anyway, how did you start the company? Why did you start this specific skincare stuff? Why? Like, just tell yeah, me the story. So I was an early adopter of, uh, of being influenced by what I'd say paleo style eating. I was like, yeah, there's something to this and I want to learn about it and thought that was cool. Uh, I was an early adopter of CrossFit, which sort of had a similar thing like, hey, you know, be a generalist. And, you know, we used to do these broad and so ancestral things were interesting to me as well as ancestral approaches to knowledge and being in the world all those things sort of fit i read an article in a weirdo obscure magazine about aloe based skin care and it's it's particular history in mexico though there's lots of history around the world but the mexican one and it hit me right in my sweet spot it was about culture it was about anthropology it was about you know history it had some chemistry and what sort of broadly that animal fat has been used as skincare, I didn't know particularly about the Mexican one. And I was like, this is great. And um, I, at the end of the article, there was a, uh, a recipe, which I had never considered making skincare in my life. Um, I thought, this sounds sort of fun. Well, I'm going to make some talented skincare of the Mexican variety. And cool. So I went to a farmer who I knew at the, who, out of it that they used in Square Farmers Market. I happened to have had bought beef from him a number of times. I'd been to his farm. I knew this guy did everything the way you would want about growing things in the ecologically wise but economically hard way because he thought it mattered. Uh, it's not safe in the world, but just that it mattered to try to do it this, this way. And it was his way of giving back and tending the best that he could and trying to deal with the psychic cost of making the world a little bit better or different or something, or even better than he found it. And I said, hey, Keith, good to see you. Wondering if you have any tallow. And he said, so funny you asked me. I do happen to have some tallow, but I need to get rid of it because of FDA regs by the end of the week. I need to throw away or burn it. Or you myself, of course. I was like, you have to throw it away or burn it? He's like, oh, yeah, like, you know, this is just FDA regs. And, you know, but he said, all of the farmers who do what I do, like, we still collect it, but. Mostly, we have to throw it away in the end. We, you know, we just bury it uh, or burn it uh, because people are freaked out by it. And but we still do it because we know how how valuable it is and how good it is. And of course, and I was like, oh yeah, candles and all that stuff. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And I said, okay, well, I I'd love to get some. And he says, how much is it? And he said, how much it was. And he says, but I'll give you a deal if you take all of it. And I said, well, how much is all of it? And he says, says I got a hundred pounds. And I said, well, I only need five. 
And he said, well, here's the price I'll give you. And I, I don't remember the exact price, but I think five pounds was going to be something like 20 bucks or 25 bucks. But if I took all of it, it was going to be like 75 bucks. And I was like, all right, I'll take all of it. I can't bear this being thrown away and not being used. And I didn't know yeah. what that actually meant to have 100 pounds of cacao. It maybe was 120 bucks, like whatever it was. It was like such a deal that I was like, I got, I'll take 10. Um, <laughs> so I took a shopping bags full of tallow on the subway all the way back home to Harlem. It was a long ride. Um, it was a ridiculous thing that I did. <laughs> and I had space for 100 pounds of tallow because um, I bought lots of meat you know, at once. And I rendered my first tallow partially by instinct, partially by reading about it and partially by watching some YouTube videos and sort of like figured it out. I made the recipe as it was said in the article and it was so fucking gross. I couldn't believe how gross it was. And it was hard to make in terms of rendering and I just didn't know what that took, but it took time uh, and effort and mess and all that stuff. Uh, and I had to contend with like, oh, wow, like, there's leftovers. Like, what do I do with these? Do I just throw that away? What do I do with that? And how do I, what's the best way to, was it the best way to respond? I don't know. But like, I was suddenly like, saw like, oh man, a lot to this. But I still had like 95 pounds of tallow left. And so I was like, I got to do, figure this out at least. And so I, I played with it more and figured out and got better and found a type of response to do with what I do with all the quote-unquote leftovers and the, the waste quote-unquote products, what to do with those. I had some kind of a response to that. I started to see the cost. And I got to a point where I sort of like, I liked it. It's cool. And so I had knew all these CrossFit people. I gave a bunch away. I sold a bunch just to friends. And everyone said like, this is really great. We love the story and it works. You should go into business. And maybe I should. And I'd never done anything like it at all. I'd never made a physical product. The things that I'd done up to that point were really just for trafficking in me being an interesting person or having interesting perspectives or just straight up creativity in the sense that, you know, I used to be a TV executive and I made a feature length film and so I did freelance TV work and stuff like that. And I was like, yeah, I'm like, Maybe I'll give this a whirl. And, you know, a partner, a dear friend who started to become a partner with me, but she ended up dropping out for health reasons of her husband almost in the, you know, like as we launched the company. So all the, the money and expertise that she was going to bring just dropped out immediately. So that was a kind of a quote unquote failure. But, but I suddenly had to, you know, take on things which I wasn't capable of doing. But that's how I got into the business. But I saw, I saw very quickly that this is an expression of my devotion to culture making, my devotion to beauty making and being aware of some of the consequences of the way that we proceed. And it's not better. There's space for lots of different ways, uh, although it's a perfectly good product. But it's, it is my expression of culture making. And I write about, uh, I mean, I don't give you like top 10 skincare tips every week. I write about culture every week to my newsletter about people who are, uh, you know, lost folk pathways and stories and things about endings and how the unseen animal world underlies our capacity to go on and beauty making and I think all these things sort of tie together.
Ta-da, there's my story. Jar sitting right here on my desk. So <laughs> it's I have one here, one in the bathroom, one upstairs. I've got them everywhere. So it is a quality product. And I will say, as I do every conversation in which your name comes up, that if somebody who is listening is not currently on your email newsletter, they need to get on it because it is the only newsletter that I read every single time it goes out. Thank so thank you for what you're putting out in the world because it's excellent. And I also want to say thank you for your attention to things that are, you know, ancestral and becoming lost and the fact that you're bringing light to them and that they aren't going to get lost completely just because of the efforts that you're putting into it. So thank you. Where I live, you know, is Northwest Ohio and it's very, monoculture here like currently where I live like my I'm in my house right now and across the street is a field of soybeans behind my house is a field of corn next to the house is another field of corn over here is another field of corn so it's like that is it this is the only thing that is grown here and it I think that me living here for 20 some years has been simply for me to learn that monoculture is not the way to do things <laughs> and that they they literally raped this land and it was a swamp it was called the great black swamp they drained it and turned it into farmland and now half the people here i mean it really fits with the attitudes of the people that live here but with few exceptions one of my my daughter's best friend's father is a farmer and he's trying to do things more the old way and you know, he, he has like reinstated a swamp, like he's let it grow, come back and, and he's just trying to do it the right way. But it's really everything about this area. It all fits together in like, I think I had to learn the lesson and now I'm ready to move on, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I would add something to that. I mean, it's easy to demonize monoculture as wrong. And there's just there's a high cost to monoculture, and to suddenly, you know, gear shift from from fifth gear to first gear can fuck things up too. So yeah, like true. downshift, it's very easy to just be like, you know, let nature do its thing. Like, right. Um, but you know, it's possible to be in relationship. But it, uh, if you don't know anything about going at a slower speed, you can't just suddenly just stomp on the brakes and do it otherwise but there is absolutely a problem with monoculture particularly with monoculture trying to try to extend itself and of course this looks like colonialism this looks like cultural domination this looks like all sorts of things right um, but one of my favorite true stories really happened was soviet scientists in the 50s uh, trying to figure out how resilient ecologies could be to nuclear waste uh, and this, I mean, this study is so Russian. I could find the reference to it somewhere, but here's what they did. Um, they took, I don't remember the exact amount, but something like a kilogram of radioactive cesium and spread it over, let's just say, an acre. And on the acre, they had one thing that was growing up. I think it was grass. And they wanted, and they said, you know, like, Igor, how much will live? And so they did it. They spread it over. <laughs> And everything died. So the same experiment again, same a different acre. They planted two things. I think it was like grass and clover. And they took the same one kilogram of radioactive cesium, which tells them how much radioactive cesium they had sitting around. 
but you know they were really thinking like you know you know we have so much nuclear warhead sitting but, uh, and they kept on just killing the soil again and again and again in different places in quote-unquote the middles of nowhere which weren't the middle of nowhere right they were a place but finally when it got to that there was a certain amount of diversity in the space that there were i don't remember the number but like you know 25 things that were growing and bunnies and mushrooms and a river that ran through it and you know uh whatever it was it could there started to be enough diversity that it could absorb the shock of the things that are happening it didn't mean that everything was great it's meant it, not everything is dying right away right so this isn't just as you obviously want to like reduce the input of like horrible poisons totally and it's not just to say like hey, have a diverse ecology and we can do whatever the fuck we want. No, that's not what's in the either. But just to say that unsought mysteries occur and having deep ecologies allows something of the capacity to do that digestion that we were talking about earlier. Something in there. Yeah. You're brilliant. That's all I can say. You are a brilliant person and I appreciate that I get to have the chance to talk to you. Yeah, we don't speak enough, but I'm glad to have this chance now. Yeah, me too. I'm gonna, do you want to um, tell them your website and whatnot, and then I will stop the recording? Yeah, Primal Derma is where I, um, you know, the word primal and the word derma together.com is where I do my skincare thing, and you can sign up for the newsletter if you want to sign up there. Um, people sometimes hire me to help them look at things creatively or differently, and that's stillmansays.com. You can sign up for the newsletter there, but I don't send anything from there. But other things that I, uh, I might do are, are there too. Um, yeah, you're better off just signing up for my newsletter at Primal Derma, but if you want to see other stuff that I do, Stillman says, I mean, look, I've got a body work website. I've got other things that I do too, but you know, I teach poetry and memoriz memorization and recitation classes, but I talk about that through primal derma because beauty making that's related so you know i do lots of weird stuff you don't do lots of weird stuff you do lots of cool stuff and it, it all fits weird. together it in a weird. way it, it does fit together but it is weird like i'm no problem with weird but just that yeah no yeah. all right i love all of it and Next. thank you again listening to the She Owns podcast. If you're interested in learning more about what She Owns is all about, head over to sheowns.org. Whether you're needing support around your business or your life, we've got you covered. Our all-in-one business suite gives you all the tools you need to run an online business. And She Owns Her Life is a year-long program aligned to the seasons to help us return to a natural rhythm, reclaim our wild power by rediscovering who we are, and relearn how to be our strong, independent selves in a world that wants us to conform. Head over to sheowns.org and learn more.